What's going on, Redemption family? We are thankful that you are able to join us in person or online today. My name is Dan, and I have the privilege of sharing some upcoming announcements with you, so listen up. Hey, where are my young adults at? If you're between the ages of 18 and 30, whether you're working or in school, this one is for you. Join us Sunday, February 27th from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. in our worship center. Young adults, you're gonna be gathering to worship our King. Tell your small group and invite a friend. See you there at 6 p.m. sharp. Oh, and if you're feeling a little bummed out because you're not a young adult, but really want a worship night, well, we're excited to announce that our first church-wide praise and prayer night of 2022 is coming up. We're meeting on Thursday, March 24th at 7 p.m. Join us as we call upon the Lord in praise and petition. These praise and prayer nights are always so refreshing to be a part of, so mark your calendar. You will not want to miss it. We hope to see you all there. And for those of you that are new here, you may not know that we, Redemption Bible Chapel, are a part of a group of churches in Canada and around the world. This group of churches is called the Great Commission Collective, or the GCC as we normally refer to it. This is a group of like-minded churches that we partner with in the gospel. So if you're out of town, traveling, moving, maybe you have family abroad who are looking for a great Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, well, you can check out GCC's website at gccollective.org. Now, the reason that I bring all of this up is that the 24 GCC churches in Canada are putting on a conference this fall, October 25th to 27th, and it's in Oakville, so it's fairly close to us. The conference theme is on Press On, and we're expecting it to sell out with over 1,200 attendees. Any of you who have been in the past know what soul-stirring, massively encouraging conferences these are. So mark your calendar now and watch out for our bulletin, download our app, head to the website for all of the registration details which will be coming in the next couple of months. That's all the announcements I have for you today. Take care and God bless. Church, good morning. It's good to see you. Come on, let's stand. Let's stand together. Let's lift our voices together. Worship. Worthy Lord, to receive our praise. of our God and King. Lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise Him. Alleluia. Thou burning sun with golden beam. Thou silver moon with softer
Yeah. 
Jesus, there's nothing impossible for you. When all I see are the ashes, you see the beauty. Thank you, God. like to read in Ukrainian Psalm 24 Господня земля і все що на ній вселена і мешканці її бо заклав він її на морях і на річках її встановив хто зійде на гору Господню і хто буде стояти на місці святому його у кого чисті руки та щире серце і хто не нахиляв на морноту своєї душі і хто не присягав на обману Нехай носить він благословіння від Господа, а праведність від Бога спасіння свого. Таке покоління усіх, хто шукає його, хто прагне обличчя Твого, Боже Яковів. Піднесіть верхи свої брами, і будьте відчинені входи від вічний, віде цар слави. Хто ж то цар слави? Господь сильний і могутній Господь потужний в бою. Хто ж то цар слави? 
Піднесіть верхи свої брами і піднесіть входи відвічні, і війде цар слави. Хто ж то він, той цар слави? Господь Савоот, він цар слави. Амінь. Амінь. Let's continue to worship. He's coming again. Roaring with power and fighting our battles 
Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, hear our prayer this morning. Hear our songs to you. Were creation suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry. Then from north to south and east to west, we'd hear Christ be magnified. Praise your name, Lord. Were the whole earth echoing his eminence, his name would burst from sea and sky. Oh, from rivers to the mountain tops, we'd hear Christ be magnified. most melody every human heart it's made in cry but then it would in raptured him of praise we'll sing Christ be magnified Christ be magnified of my praise on the altar of our praise there is no higher name than the name of Jesus our Savior our Master our King and I won't bow to idols I'll stand strong and worship you and if it puts me in the fire I'll rejoice because you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings. I'll hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. Because death is just the doorway into resurrection life. And if I join you in your sufferings, then I'll join you when you rise. And you return in glory with all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing. 
magnified in me. We sing on the altar of our praise. Let them be no higher name. Sing his name. Jesus, Son of God. You lay down your perfect life. You are the sacrifice. Jesus, Son of God. Sing you are. Yes, you are Jesus, Son of God. On the altar. On the altar of our praise, there be no higher name, no other name but yours, Son of God. You lay down your perfect life, you are the sacrifice, Jesus, Son of God. So you are, you are Jesus, Son of God. sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art oh how great thou art and sings then sings my soul my Savior God to me. How great thou art. Oh, how great thou art. Sings, then sings my soul. Sing to the Lord. My Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art, and sings, then sings my soul, my Savior God to bow to idols. Stand firm, trusting in you and worshiping you this morning. Father, thank you for being here gathered as we're gathered in your midst to sing your praise, to lift our voices in praise and adoration of our, our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords. Father, thank you for your grace and for your work, the saving, life-giving work of your spirit in all of our lives, those who would call in the name of Jesus, that we can actually sing on the altar of our praise. There's no higher name than the name Jesus. Again, we love you because you first loved us, and so we respond to you. We respond to your greatness and say, how great thou art in Jesus' name. The church says amen together. The church says amen together. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You may be seated.
That was interesting. <laughs> Good morning to each of you. It is uh, great to be with you this Lord's Day. It has been a pleasure uh, to be with you these, these three Sundays. Uh, Pastor Norm, two sermons took you through Matthew chapter 24, and I have had three opportunities to walk you through Matthew chapter 25, these two chapters, of course, constituting Christ's fifth and final major discourse in Matthew's gospel account. So we are going to return to this sermon for one last look and trust the Spirit of God blesses us as we study God's Word together. As you're finding your way there, I want to begin with a question, and it's a question I ask you to keep in mind throughout the remainder of our, our worship together. Uh, the question is this, what is your greatest need? I'll give you a few moments just to think, a few moments to ponder that question. What is your greatest need? Our greatest need isn't to be happy, to be content, to be fulfilled. Human flourishing is important. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. And happiness, contentment, fulfillment, um, these are things to be celebrated and things for which we should thank God. But they aren't our greatest need. Our greatest need isn't to be in a meaningful relationship. Marriages, families, friendships, again, they are important. And if God has given them to us, we should thank Him for them. But they are not our greatest need. Our greatest need isn't to be free from political tyranny. Personal rights and freedoms are important. And uh, when we enjoy them, we should receive them from the hand of God and thank God for them, but they are not our greatest need. Our greatest need isn't good health, freedom from a crippling sickness, ailment, illness. Good health is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful reality. We are not to take it lightly. We enjoy good health. We give thanks to God, but good health is not our greatest need. What is our greatest need? What is your greatest need? And so I invite you to keep that question in mind as we turn to Christ's fifth and final sermon in Matthew's gospel account. Our focus today is chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, but here's what I want to do. I actually want to begin reading way back in chapter 24. Verse 36. In the first 35 verses of chapter 24, the Lord Jesus points to the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And He uses that historical event, A.D. 70, to pivot and to look ahead to a coming judgment, final judgment. And that pivot really takes place in verse 36 of chapter 24, Final judgment, coming judgment is a central motif right through the remainder of the sermon, and it comes to a culmination 
in verses 31 through 46. And so let's read it in its entirety. Let's listen to the words of the Lord Jesus as He preached them. And here it is, beginning verse 36 of chapter 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is, the, is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money." Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food, I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What is the question we are pondering? What is our greatest need. I want to lead up to the answer by directing your attention to three things the Lord Jesus says about God's judgment in these verses. Verses, again, 31 through to 46, the third section in Matthew chapter 25. I'm drawing your attention to three facts concerning God's judgment from the lips of the Lord Jesus as he preached it. Here is the first. God's judgment is fixed. Look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes, it does not say if the Son of Man comes. The Lord Jesus is not presenting one of multiple potential futures. He is not saying here is what might happen. He is not saying here is what could happen. He is not saying here is one of 21 possible futures. You better be ready because you don't know. No, he is stating a fact. 
when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. Now notice the future of assurance. Then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Again, Christ is not presenting a mere possibility. He is proclaiming exactly what is going to happen. He is telling us in no uncertain terms. He is not mixing words. God's judgment is fixed. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul preached, proclaimed there in the Areopagus, in the midst of that intellectual center, in the middle of the city of Athens. He made it clear that God has fixed a day. It is predetermined. He has scheduled it. It is going to happen. God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. It is a central motif in Christ's sermon. And one of the things the Lord Jesus wants to convey to us is this, that so many people are living in denial. It's the difference it is the difference between the wise and the foolish back in the parable of the virgins. It is the difference between the good and faithful servant and the wicked and slothful servant in the parable of the talents. And now in our text, it is the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. God's judgment is fixed. The foolish the wicked and slothful servant and the unrighteous, they refuse to accept what is coming and they refuse to live in the reality of that day that is dawning. We use an expression, don't we? When a man, when a woman refuses to accept the facts, we use that expression, oh, he's in denial. You use it? I use it quite often. Oh, he's in denial. She's in denial. These are the facts. The facts are obvious. They're overwhelming. They refuse to accept them. They're in denial. They're denying the obvious. If this touches too close to home, forgive me, but I, I, I pray it does help us to, to grasp this. You think of that, 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 that gentleman who has terminal cancer, and he has been told it's terminal, and he has been told he has no more than six months to live. But um, he's convinced himself he's, he's going to get better. He refuses to update his will. He refuses to get his house in order. He refuses to make preparations. That man is living what? In denial. He's in denial. You think of that woman with a teenage daughter who's addicted to drugs. Terrible scenario. But that woman, um, she continues to give her daughter clothing money because uh, she insists that her daughter is merely going through a phase. It's a phase, a fad that will pass. The woman is in what? She's in denial. 
You think of the man, 50 years old, severe chest pains all of a sudden, shortness of breath, but he refuses to get help. He refuses to go to the emergency uh, because he has told himself, no, it's because I was shoveling snow two days ago. The man is what? He's in denial. This is what we have in this sermon, chapters 24 and 25. The Lord Jesus is describing a bunch of different scenarios in which there are people who are living in denial. And what is it they deny? They deny the obvious. They deny the facts. What facts do they deny? Simply these. Jesus Christ is coming again. And when he comes again and his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and he will gather all the nations before him. And he will set the sheep, his people, on his right. The goats, those who are not his people, on the left. To live in denial, it, it explains so much concerning the human predicament. The Apostle Paul actually tells us this. In Romans chapter 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul tells us, all people, in all places, at all times, know three facts. This is important when it comes to evangelism. Very important when it comes to apologetics and defending the faith because we have this idea that we need to convince people of the truth. No, we do not. That's not the human predicament. The human predicament is not that you have this individual who is objective in their outlook and if only they had enough evidence, they would choose wisely. That's not what the Bible says. The human predicament is this. Man suppresses what he knows to be true. That's the problem. That's the human predicament. And there are three facts that every single individual who has ever lived, currently living, will live, knows to be true. Paul tells us this in Romans 1 and 2. The first is this. God exists. Ever since the creation of the world, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, evident through what has been made. The second is this, God's law. Because God himself has written it upon the human heart. It's called natural law, God's moral law. The third is this, every single individual knows, knows this intuitively, God's decree concerning a coming judgment. Man's problem is this, he's in denial. He refuses to live according to reality as he knows it to be true. And he willfully suppresses the truth. He denies the very nature of God. He denies the law of God. And he certainly denies all concept or notion concerning a coming judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ here makes it painfully and abundantly clear. Judgment is fixed. The second fact he says concerning God's judgment is this. It is fair. It is based on the evidence and so look at what he says beginning in verse 35. For I, he's speaking in the first person singular, me, I, I was hungry and you gave me food. He's speaking to the sheep, the righteous. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Evidence. Skip all the way down to verse 42. Now he's speaking to the goats, the unrighteous. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. 
I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. The righteous and the unrighteous both ask the same question. When? Lord Jesus, I never saw you. You never appeared to me. You're now holding me accountable for, for not feeding you when you were hungry, not giving you something to drink when you were thirsty, not visiting you when you were in prison, not caring for you when you were sick, not welcoming you in when you were a stranger. You're accusing me of all these things or saying that I did do these things, whether you're sheep or goats, when I never saw you. And the Lord Jesus makes the point in verse 40, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What point is he making? Think it through. Imagine the scene. You have the unrighteous over here. You have the righteous over here. He will open the books and judgment will be fair and it will be based on evidence. And the evidence will be what? What is the Lord Jesus saying? The evidence will be this. Do you love me? There's the distinguishing mark. And to his sheep, he will say, I know you love me. And I know you love me because you've loved my people. And I know you've loved my people because you have fed the hungry. You have given drink to the thirsty. You have visited those in prison, those who are lonely, those who are in hospital, those who are in need. You've demonstrated compassion and mercy and kindness. You've done this to my people. I am one with my people. And because you did it to them, you did it to me. And because you did it out of love for them, you did it out of love for me. And he will turn to the goats, the unrighteous. You don't love me. I know this, by the way, you've treated my people. When they were hungry, you never fed them. When they were thirsty, you never gave them anything to drink. When they were in prison, you never visited them. Hospital, never visited them. Lonely, you never visited them. Strangers, you never welcomed them in. And so judgment will be based on evidence. And the determining factor will be this. What do you think of the Lord Jesus? And do you love the Lord Jesus? Well, how will you know if you love the Lord Jesus or not? Christ is one with his people. He's here, his body, right now. And so the distinguishing mark will be what? What do we think of God's people? How do we treat God's people? And are we compassionate and merciful and kind to the people of God? Now, I know this is perplexing, all right? You stick with me here very carefully. Let's mind our P's and Q's, cross all our T's and dot all our I's, all right? Scripture interprets Scripture. I almost said, say that with me. No need. But Scripture interprets Scripture. One more time. Scripture interprets Scripture. Ephesians 2. Most of us have known verses 8 and 9 ever since we were in Sunday school. We were little boys and little girls. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, right? It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we affirm because Scripture affirms it. Salvation is by grace alone. Salvation is a gift an expression of God's love, an expression of His mercy, an expression of grace because we rest upon the Lord Jesus alone. It's not about what we have done. It is all about what Christ has done. He has lived a perfect life on our behalf and He has died a substitutionary death 
paying the penalty for our sins. And therefore, it's all of grace. It is a gift that God offers to us and a gift that is received through faith. What is faith? It is the hand of the soul. That's all it is. Someone hands you a gift, you have to physically reach out your hand and take it. That's all faith is. Faith is receiving what God offers in Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. What does Paul go on to say in Ephesians 2 verse 10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so when we are talking about the instrument by which we are saved, it is faith alone. But when we speak of the path we now walk home, it is characterized by good works. These good works have no merit. These good works are not the cause of our salvation. Salvation is a gift. These good works are the abundant fruit of salvation. Now you might be thinking to yourself, hang on a second. Thief on the cross. That guy never had any time to do any works. He never had any time, you know, like, so, so on the judgment day, what's the Lord Jesus going to show? Well, yeah, it's true. On the judgment day when the books are open and the thief, that thief comes forward, the thief on the cross, what, 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 are, what are the judgment books going to declare? Well, yeah, there he is. 99.99% of his life lived in sin. 99.99% of his life lived in sin. And then by the grace of God, something happened on that cross. By, by the grace of God, he saw who the Lord Jesus Christ truly is. And he confessed his sin, and he welcomed, he received the Lord Jesus as his Savior. And then 0.01% of his life, a few hours, as he breathed his last upon that cross, the transforming power of God's grace was evident in his life. Good works. What they were, eternity will tell. But I pray you're getting the idea. It is not a question of, okay, here are a bunch of bad works and bad things I've done. I'll put it in this side of the scale. And here are all the good things I've done, and I will place it in this side of the scale. And I will hope that this side of the scale, the good things, will outweigh the bad things. I hope I'll score a solid 51% or a C plus or an A minus or whatever it is God requires, that there will simply be enough, enough merit, enough something in there to grab God's attention to outweigh the bad. That's not what we're talking about. That's legalism. We are simply affirming this, and the Lord Jesus is affirming this. Yes, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves as a gift of God, not as a result of works no, no man will boast. No one's going to boast. Works do not cause anything. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he has saved us. And in saving us, he has transformed us. And in transforming us, he has made us one with himself. And the Spirit of God is now active in us, and we now walk home. It might be for a couple of hours. It might be for two years. It might be for 20 years. It might be for 80 years. However long the Lord gives you, that life will testify to the transforming power of the gospel in our lives. And the books, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself opens them, will declare it. They will proclaim it. Not these works because they have merit, but these works testify to our love for him and our love from Him flowing from a gospel that we received by grace through faith. Oh, God's judgment is fair. 
And no one is going to be able to answer back. No one is going to be able to refute the evidence. No one is going to give a counter-argument. The third fact concerning God's judgment is this. It is final. Look at verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He has used that word eternal at different junctures in this sermon. It hurts the brain to think on it, doesn't it? To just sit there alone, your living room, fireside. Eternity without end. This, this idea of going on and on. You know, it's one of the reasons I'm convinced that, the, that, that, that God created the universe as He created it. Immeasurable. And so you, you, you've heard perhaps it said that if, the, if our earth were the size of a pea, a pea the size of the nail maybe on your pinky, if our earth were the size of a pea, and if we were able to travel at the speed of light, it would take 10 billion years to reach the edge of the universe? 10 billion years. Well, the earth isn't a pea. It's actual size. We can't travel at the speed of light, maybe 120 on the 401. How long would it take to reach the edge of the universe? It's incalculable. I think it's intentional. It is to give us some idea, this idea of infinity, and it is to give us some notion of eternality, something that never ends. So I heard a preacher many, many years ago, I think it was at a youth conference, maybe a camp, and he gave, he gave this example. It was something like this. It might not have been exactly this, but he, he asked us to imagine a bird. You imagine this little bird, little sparrow, and the sparrow takes a single grain of sand from the shore on the beach, and he flies with that little grain of sand to a field and deposits it in the field. He does that once every thousand years. Once every thousand years, takes a single grain of sand from the beach in the field. Over time, those grains of sand accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. Once every thousand years, when that accumulation of grains of sand reaches the size of Mount Everest, how much time has elapsed? Eternity hasn't even begun. goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. God's judgment is final. It is fixed, it is fair, and it is final. Now, what is the question we're pondering? Have you forgotten? What is our greatest need. In light of what we've read, in light of what we've heard, in the face of God's judgment, fixed, fair, and final, friend, what do you really need? I'm not talking about what you want, but what do you really need? What do I really need? If you are an unbeliever, to answer that question, I want to direct your attention to what the Lord Jesus says in verse 41. And please, friend, I'm not seeking to put you on the spot or single you out, but if 
unbeliever, seated here, watching from home. Verse 41, please give it your full attention. Then he, the Lord Jesus, will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. There's that word again, eternal. Eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The Lord Jesus is describing an agony that will never end. Uh, C.S. Lewis, decades ago, visited a, a, a parish church in England, and a young man was preaching, and this young man, towards the end of his sermon, looked at his congregation and said, that if you do not heed Christ's call, you may suffer negative eschatological consequences. C.S. Lewis thought that was kind of strange, negative eschatological consequences. So he went to visit the preacher in the afternoon and said, uh, negative eschatological consequences, did you, did you mean they'll go to hell? And the young minister said, yeah, why, yes. To which Lewis exasperated arms in the air. Then why in the world did you not just say so? Say it plainly. State it unequivocally. I trust declare it lovingly and compassionately. But this is not the time for mixing words. This is not the time for beating about the bush. The words of Christ himself on the judgment day depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. If you are not a believer... What is your greatest need? I dare say, really, your only need. What is your greatest need? Is to hear the Lord Jesus say to you, your sins are forgiven. That's your greatest need. Your sins are forgiven. And they are forgiven, says the Lord Jesus, because I did not come into this world to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. His life upon Calvary's cross, whereby He ransoms us, rescues us, redeems us. How is that possible? Listen carefully, my friend, because upon Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus went through hell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is hell. He was forsaken so that we can be welcomed. He was punished so that we can be pardoned. Right? He was condemned so that we might be justified. And God says to you this day, my friend, here is my son, my beloved son, who has done it all. And who has borne the penalty for your sin. Your rebellion against me upon Calvary's cross. And this now, my friend, is a gift. It is a gift that I am offering to you. And it is a gift to be received through faith. If you are not a Christian, that is your greatest need. And for those of us who are Christians, it is our greatest need. Let me direct you to verse 34 
It's beautiful. Let me read it a couple of times and pray it just seeps in and grips our souls. Christ will say to us on the judgment day, He will say to His sheep, He will say to the righteous, the King will say to those on His right, Come, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He will say to us, Come, you are welcome. Come, come, blessed by the Father, favored by the Father, loved by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I dare say this verse gripping our souls as Christians is our greatest need. There are three precious, wonderful truths that emerge from this text that should orient our lives, thrill our souls, govern our entire outlook. The first is this, the wrath of God cannot find those who are in Christ. Oh, I need to hear that every day. The wrath of God cannot find those who are in Christ. You go all the way back, Christian, go all the way back to the Old Testament, think back on all those Sunday school stories that you learned, you go all the way back to Noah's flood, God's judgment. How was Noah and his family rescued, spared, delivered? What did they have to do? They had to get into the ark. You fast forward to the land of Egypt, the 10th plague, and the slaughter of the firstborn in the households of all the Egyptians. What did the Israelites have to do to be delivered, rescued from that terrible judgment? They had to get into the house, and the blood had to be applied to the lintel and to the doorpost, didn't it? You fast forward to the time of the judges, and in they go, Joshua and all his mighty men, and they walk around Jericho, and God himself causes the foundations of Jericho to crack, and the entire city falls down, does it? No, one house. Who's in there? Rahab and her family. You go through the Old Testament time and time over and over and over and over again. Sometimes we're so slow to get this. Judgment, 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 and it is all pointing us forward to a final judgment, but the great lesson interwoven in all of those judgments we see unfolding before our very eyes is that God always makes a way of rescue, and people always need to get into something. We need to get into whom? Jesus Christ. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, the wrath of God cannot find us. Oh, to meditate on this daily, as the hymn writer put it, the sin is on the Savior laid. My sin is on the Savior laid. Tis in his blood sin's debt is paid. Stern justice can demand no more, and mercy can dispense her store, her abundance. Oh, that is our greatest need, to live in the daily reality of this precious truth, that the wrath of God cannot find those who are in Christ Jesus. I think there's a second truth in here that ought to shape our present reality. It is this, seemingly small acts of love are pleasing in God's sight. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Seemingly small, trivial acts 
of love are pleasing in God's sight. We love the Lord Jesus. Therefore, we love his people, his body. And we express that love in good works. Preparing a meal for that young couple who just had their first baby. Preparing a meal for that individual who's been sick now for a week or two. Visiting a shut-in. Someone who's lonely. Someone recently bereaved of a loved one. Ministering to those who are discouraged, writing a note, sending an email, offering a ride. That older sister can't drive anymore. How does she get to her doctor's appointment? How does she get her groceries? How does she get to church on a Sunday morning? Giving money to the mercy ministries here at Redemption Bible Chapel. Small things. When you place them on the scale, relatively small things. Oh, but things which are so pleasing in the sight of God because they testify to our love for the Lord Jesus, because we are expressing our love for one another, His body, and we are thinking of others, putting others ahead of ourselves, and we are dispensing mercy and compassion and kindness. You know, you think those parents, those of you who've been through this, some of you, you'll have to go way back, but you remember Johnny coming home from kindergarten, or Susie, and they've brought home with them that painting. Do you remember? It's a test, parents. Johnny hands you that painting, and you know the dreaded, you know the dreaded question is coming. What do you think it is? It's beautiful is what it is. That's the right answer. And it goes up on the fridge for that obligatory one-year period. And you put the magnet there on the fridge. Johnny says it's upside down. I know it's upside down. Just trying to get a different perspective, son. And you don't ridicule him. You don't critique or criticize what he has done. You, you accept it from him. You accept it as an expression of his love. Yes, our good works do nothing for God. He doesn't need them. He gains nothing from them, benefits in absolutely no way from them, but he loves his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he loves us because we're one with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we love Christ by loving others and doing good one to another, oh, however small, however seemingly trivial, and however seemingly insignificant, oh, these works are a fragrant aroma. They are pleasing in the sight of God. Oh, to orient our lives accordingly. What is our greatest need? What is most important? I watched a little bit of the curling, the Olympics. Didn't see a lot of it, but a little bit of the curling. There was a commercial, TV commercial, that really caught my attention. Famous actor. And it really just drew me in. Because he begins by drawing our attention to the fact that so many of us are consumed with stuff. And he tells us that when we look back on our lives, we won't wish we had a sportier SUV. We won't wish we had a thinner television, a trendier perfume, or a smarter smartphone. We won't wish we had any of these things. And then he states, do you think any of us will look back on our lives and regret things we didn't buy? He had me. The first time I saw it, he, he just, it just right in. It was riveting. I said, this is 
This is unbelievable. This is fabulous. Finally, a commentary on the sad condition of the society in which we live, where so many people try to infuse meaning and purpose into empty objects. What's the punchline going to be? It is going to be something astounding, something wonderful. Do you think any of us will look back on our lives and regret things we didn't buy? And then it comes. Or the places we didn't go. Expedia. That's all you got. So, so if I live for material things, at the end, life will be meaningless. But if I happen to see the world, well, then life will be meaningful. It's a sad commentary on our society, isn't it? It sums it up. It sums up our society. We live according to the mantra of our society in an ultimately meaningless world. And it is our calling to infuse some kind of meaning in the trivial. Oh, Christians, we have meaning. Tremendous significance. We belong to the King. And the King has made us part of His body and His family. And He now enables us by the Holy Spirit to love God by loving neighbor. Oh, and when we look back on our lives to have lived a life of selfless service, to have lived for others, to have thought of others ahead of ourselves, and to have practiced mercy, kindness, and compassion in the name of Christ. Oh, my friend, what is our greatest need? And the third thing I want to draw your attention to from this verse is this. It, too, should orient our lives. An inheritance that staggers the imagination awaits God's people. Look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. Now notice he doesn't stop there. He adds a couple of things. Prepared for who? For you. Prepared for you. You were in mind when God prepared this kingdom from the foundation of the world. It isn't something God came up with yesterday or a hundred years ago, thousand years ago, or even at creation. We enter into the eternal decrees of God. He has prepared, He has decreed a kingdom for His people. We go to Romans chapter 8, for example, verses 18 through 25. There we read that creation, the entire cosmos, is standing on tiptoes, with neck outstretched, looking in anticipation. Paul actually tells us that all creation is groaning. For what? What is creation looking for? What is creation anticipating? And we hear its groans, don't we? We've been hearing those groans ever since the fall. And these groans are anticipatory as creation looks to something with expectation, neck outstretched. What is it? The revelation of the sons of God. It's us. It's the redemption of our bodies. It is the resurrection. Our resurrection bodies united with our glorified souls, whereby we are like the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, it will mark a restoration and regeneration for the entire cosmos. This is the kingdom that the Father has prepared for you. And it gets even better because He's promised to dwell in our midst. It won't be a tree in the middle of Eden. It will be the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And as Christ dwells in our midst, we will be eternally embraced 
in the arms of that love which is from everlasting to everlasting. We will be eternally embraced by the arms of that love which brought the Son of God from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory. His love will eternally embrace us. The wrath of God cannot find those who are in Christ. Seemingly small acts of kindness are pleasing in the sight of God and an inheritance that staggers the imagination awaits the people of God. What is our question where we began and with which we shall conclude? What is our greatest need? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us in answering that question in your sight this day. And may you impress the preeminence and the excellence and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ upon us. For that one unbeliever, perhaps more, in our midst, even now we pray that the Spirit of God might bring about conviction for sin. That you might convince that man, that woman, of the truth of the gospel. And that you might remove the scales from off their eyes. That they might see eternity as a reality. And that there are two destinations that stand before every individual. And may they understand that the Lord Jesus alone is a mighty Savior. And may this be the day of salvation. We ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom among us. We ask it for the good, the edification, the encouragement of your people. And we ask it for your glory in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. Trust in you. His oath is covenant, his blood. So for 
shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. Sing faultless, faultless stand before the throne. We sing that again. This is our future, this is our hope, and our prayer, Lord, that you would come quickly. Sing together when he shall come. He's coming, church. We sing. He shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then, oh, may I then in him be found. You, Lord, dressed in his righteousness alone, fall his stand. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. This is our hope. Our prayer, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that's our prayer, Father, that we would be your church. We would be faithful to you, trusting in you, strengthened by your spirit as we go now. Lord, it is our heart's desire to be the church for you, to a city that desperately needs you. So we go now in peace and confidence that you bring. You go before us, a sovereign one, King of kings, Lord of lords, over all things. And the church says amen again together. Amen. Go in peace. Amen. Praise the Lord.